for our listeners, and maybe there's some out there that this predates them, it was 50 years ago. Can you set the stage? Why in 1972 was there this push to have the NHL's best Canadian players play against the Soviet Union's national hockey team? Sure. The backdrop to this sets up, you know, is is vital here because it is so foreign to what we know hockey to be today. Yeah. That for the first fifty years, from nineteen twenty, the first uh, Olympic hockey and World Cups and so on in hockey, the Canadians would send the amateur teams, usually, you know, a bunch of uh, Allen Cup winners, perhaps. That's the best amateur team around, and they'd have no problem crushing whatever else was out there. The Americans, of course, the. Um, the French, the Germans, the Finns, the Swedes, by, you know, demonic scores, just crazy stuff. Yeah. But that kind of ended in 63, uh, when the Soviet Union, led by Anatoly Tarasov, the father of Russian hockey, started beating the Canadians at literally their own game and had 10 straight uh, world championships slash Olympics. And guess what? The Canadians were getting a little tired of this, kind of the way the Americans were with basketball a few years ago. Right. When their college kids were losing to the... You know, Argentinians and so on. So the Americans put together their dream team with Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and Michael Jordan. And the Canadians did the same thing in 72 with the NHL All-Stars. And they assumed there's no way in hell we're ever going to lose. And the the most dire prediction uh, from any media member was six games to two for Canada. I should also explain the way the setup was so odd. Four games across Canada, Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, and Vancouver, mm-hmm. and then four games in Moscow. And think about that in itself, David. An eight-game series means you're not serious. No one thinks this yeah. is going to come down to the last game. It's not set up that way. It's not best of seven. And the Canadians are supposed to win truly all eight games. So that's the setup. And at one point, Harry Sinden, the coach of this team, says, we could send out the guys we didn't play in the first game and beat them by, you know, five or six. That's how confident everybody was that Team Canada was going to crush them. And by the way, Team Canada, that was the first time that name was coined. Back in 72. Amazing. Yep. And we'll talk about the Soviets. Obviously, they had sort of decided they were going to get serious about hockey, but weren't playing the best of Canada. They were playing, as you say, these Allen Cup teams and Allen Cup winner teams. But they're, but they're still, this team is playing in major tournaments around the world and Canadians are watching them. I'm just, why were, why were we so overconfident as a nation that we would smoke these guys, given all of the people who had seen them play and, you know, said maybe they're better than we think? Well, one of the problems was not many really had seen the Russians play, the Soviets. And I call them interchangeably the Russians and the Soviets. All but one of the players came from Russia. So... Um, they are basically a Russian team. But uh, what would the Canadians do? They'd send the, the Trail Smoke Eaters, the Saskatoon Quakers, the Port Arthur Bearcats. And nobody confused those guys with the Flying Frenchmen, obviously. So this is not, they thought, anywhere near their best. But what they forgot is this. Back then, there were only six NHL teams. And they only carried 15 players per team. That's 90 guys. Uh, back then, of course, in the 40s, you know, 30s, 40s, and 50s, Every Canadian boy played hockey, pretty much. Even my right. my geeky uncle in Montreal, who's a computer jack, he played hockey. He wasn't very good, didn't like it very much, but he, everyone played hockey. And this funnel goes down to these 90 players. You can be an extremely good player and never touch the NHL. You'd be at the American Hockey League, perhaps, playing for the Hershey Bears or playing for an Allen Cup team that is quite good, but you've got a day job and you can't make a living doing this. So they underestimated the quality of the teams they were sending over there, and therefore... They automatically underestimated how good the Soviets were because, okay, you beat these guys 4-2, but who are the trail smoke eaters? 
You know, who right. cares? Right. And not realizing they had, you know, guys in those teams would be millionaires today in the NHL. Um, so they had made two colossal mistakes. And then why not make a third mistake, David? And so over the scouts from the Toronto Maple Leafs. And if you want to get, <laughs> if you want to get the old timers laughing, like Bobby yeah. Clark and Pete Mahovlich and Phil Esposito, and I talked to all those guys at great length. That mm-hmm. well, of course we got a rotten scouting report. We sent the Maple Leafs guys, and they said <laughs> not one Soviet player could play in the NHL. It turns out all of them could. Many of them would be Hall of Famers, and you know, and and they knew that within three games. Uh, right. Once they're playing in Canada, and the best part of the scouting report was saying if Vladislav Tretiak, the goalie, if he's in net, the Team Canada will have an automatic five to six goal advantage because that's how bad this guy is. They saw him play once. He led in eight or nine goals that night. What they didn't know is his bachelor party was the night before, and he was getting married the next morning. This man was not focused. That's John U. Bacon, New York Times best-selling author, talking about his latest book. The Greatest Comeback, How Team Canada Fought Back, Took the Summit Series, and Reinvented Hockey. He's our guest on Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast. It was 50 years ago this month that arguably the greatest hockey series of all time took place. In September 1972, at the height of the Cold War East-West tensions, for the first time ever, the Summit Series pitted the best pro-Canadian hockey players against the Soviet Union's elite national team. It was meant to be a Canadian cakewalk. We invented the game after all. It turned into anything but. The series was only clinched in the dying seconds of the final game by Canada's Paul Henderson and a goal watched live on television by three out of four Canadians at the time, 16 million people, a nation at standstill. Here's Foster Hewitt with the call. Here's another shot right by the score! Henderson has scored for Canada! Henderson right in front of the net! And the players of the game are going wild! Henderson right in front of the goal! If there's a goal that everyone remembers, it was back in 072. We all squeeze the stick and we and that, of course, is the tragically hip, further immortalizing Paul Henderson's goal heard round the world. In his book, The Greatest Comeback, John Bacon argues that no one moment in hockey history transformed how the game was played as dramatically and as quickly as what happened in the month of September during that eight-game 72 Summit Series. John is a Canadian-American author and journalist, Raised in Michigan, he has deep roots in the Maritimes. His best-selling books include The Great Halifax Explosion, The Spark, about Cirque du Soleil, and Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. For The Greatest Comeback, John interviewed at length 17 of the remaining 22 Team Canada members. So an incredible array of players. Like, I mean, and we have to say the Canadians dominated the NHL. So these really are the best players in the NHL. It's David. They didn't dominate the NHL. They were the NHL. Ninety nine percent of the league were Canadians. In seventy two, the All Star Game, thirty eight players were all Canadians. In the decade of the sixties, there's one American named Tommy Williams who played the entire decade. There's one European, Ulf Sterner, who mm. played in the NHL. It was all Canadians. Great. So you've got all these Canadians, and they, they bring together this group. It was at 34, I think. 
35 guys. 35 guys, which is a a bigger than usual roster, right? (laughs) By about 15. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So what what was the thinking behind that? And this is fascinating how this twists and turns. First of all, you take, you know, 20, 22 guys maybe on a roster, even in those days, and you dress Mm -hmm. 19 back then, two goalies, um, 17 skaters. But Sinden knew a couple things. One, he's asking a favor. Give up your August to skate with us for three weeks and then give up your September to do all these games. These guys have got hockey camps. They work at golf courses. They have farms. So you're asking a lot. You're going to pay them almost nothing, $3,000 total per player. Um, And with that in mind, these guys are prideful. They're Hall of Famers, many of them, certainly all-stars, all of them. So I can't bring you to the camp for three weeks and then cut you. So to get you to come to camp, I've got to take everybody. Why do you take 35 guys in that case? Because the only competition you could have would be each other. There's no other team you could play in North America that could give you a run to get ready for the Soviets. So you need enough players to have an inter-squad scrimmage, which they did three times in Toronto, um, and got you know great crowds for those and real write-ups and so on. So you needed that for the scrimmages. And then, of course, once the games start, you realize what a liability of this is, because now you've got you know, seven lines of players, and they're all complaining. Right. <laughs> I mean, these are all-stars, like I said, and Vic Hadfield, most notably, was furious when he was taken out of the lineup after game two. He had all this discontent. But then once you boiled it down, it turns out that 35 was a great blessing because guess what? The last line they took happened to be Bobby Clark centering Ron Ellis and Paul Henderson. That was by far the best line of either team in the entire series. And Harry Sin has told me, if it's not 35 guys, they're not even close. So without those guys at the back end, the back end guys ended up saving them. And the would-be hot shots often were busts. Amazing. Amazing. So in hockey culture back then, NHL hockey culture in 72 was quite different from now. And you get into this in your book. How did that affect sort of the cohesion of this team going into this tournament? Uh, it was very different, and it almost ruined it. <laughs> so yeah. you're right about that. And again, it's so fascinating to go back 50 years to see how much different the game was and the infrastructure around it. So now in Canada, of course, you've got the under-17 team, the under-18 team, and they get together, and they play around the world. They know all the best players in Finland and Sweden and the United States before they're 19. Um, they know each other, and they go to different teams in the NHL, but they're still friends and none of that happened back in those days. There were silos. Your rights were bought by the Boston Bruins, the Chicago Blackhawks, Montreal, of course. Um, and that's the only system you knew from age 15 on. And very few of these guys on this team had ever been traded. So all they knew was Montreal. All they knew was the Rangers. All they knew was the Boston Bruins. And not only was it set up that way to begin with, they had rules to make sure you were not friends on top of that. They had rules you could not golf with each other in the summer. That's from Clarence Campbell, the president of the NHL. He loved the rivalries. He loved the animosity. If you're on the same train going between Detroit and Montreal, you would walk off the train at the next station, walk around the Montreal car to go to the dining car so you did not even make eye contact between the Red Wings and the Montreal Canadiens. This is how bitter it was. Great little scene with John Ferguson, well-known, of course, to hockey fans. Yeah. Uh, tough guy from Montreal, John Bellavoe's enforcer, basically. The assistant coach in this team. Serge Savard is a young guy playing for Montreal. They're in Chicago. They play the game. They go to the bar. And he's having a beer afterwards with some Blackhawks. And Ferguson comes up and grabs his elbow and says, you're leaving because these guys are not your friends. And it was not a suggestion. So they had these animosities built into the NHL culture. Make a team out of that. That was Sinan's challenge. 
So you've got all these guys who aren't necessarily talking to each other in the dressing room. They hate room. each other. They <laughs> truly do. They really hate each other. <laughs> That's how cold things were internally. Forget the Russians for a second. All right. Internally, you already have big problems before you play game one. And is that clear in training camp going in? Is that? Yeah, because Bruins go out with Bruins at night and Canadians go out with Canadians and Maple Leafs with Maple Leafs. You huh. do not go to the same bars, even in Toronto, together. Right. So you've got this team that isn't necessarily cohesive. Great players. Very overconfident. The, the country's overconfident along with them. I'm guessing the media as well. This is game one from Montreal. Ken Dryden is in goal for Canada. Now it's Phil Esposito going to center with Pernod Waye on one side and uh, Frank Mahovlich on the other. And the face-off and the game is underway with Petrov having cleared it. it so take us into game goal. one, which was... I can think we can say a shocker. <laughs> uh, one of the headlines was Mondieu. Montreal Gazette, other newspapers, saved their atomic bomb headlines for that game. So the game starts out, it's sweltering hot. Uh, one of the reports in one of the Montreal papers said 115 or so Fahrenheit. No air conditioning in those days. And this is September 2nd, uh, an unusually hot day. Place is packed, all this feeds into it, the ice is soft. But Phil Esposito scores in the first you know, 90 seconds. Okay, we shouldn't worry about this. This is from Ken Dryden. And then and then he says, you know what, though? These guys are skating with us. We're not, you know, running around them. They're holding their own. But then Paul Henderson scores his first goal about five and a half minutes into the first game. He said, no, no, I'm getting paranoid. We're, we're going to be fine. The final score was the Soviets 7, Team Canada 3. And that's when it's apocalypse now, basically. Um, Ken Dryden gave me a great quote about this. He went to his hotel room. They flew to Toronto that night from Montreal. And there's no Sunday papers back then. There's no TSN. There's no you know ESPN. There's no internet, etc. Sports talk radio. And he wakes up without a roommate. And he says before he opens his eyes, "If I don't open my eyes, maybe this didn't happen." <laughs> <laughs> he said, bad. "This is the lowest day of my career and maybe my life." And they all felt that way. And the country was beside itself. I mean, truly. Yeah. What was, I mean, give us some media reaction to that. Like, what was the... the media reaction was they were the same media guys who were saying it's going to be eight nothing. This is no yeah. point in doing this. And the players weren't saying that. The yeah. media was saying that. They just flipped on them and within 24 hours were spoiled, rotten brats. The NHL, these guys are entitled and they don't know what work is. And, you know, we don't have a monopoly on the game anymore. They turn on them like that. So it was the shocker of their careers. And the guys in the locker room said, after the game, in the locker room, everyone was just staring off into space. Nobody's taking their skates off. And when somebody would walk in, it's like there's a death that just no words were spoken. And kind of even cooler than that, Bobby Clark told me this and Paul Henderson, even after Paul scored, he comes back to the bench and Ron Ellis, his best friend, says, well, what do you think? And he said, it took me about five seconds to catch my breath to tell him what I thought. And that's when I know that we're screwed. Because <laughs> those guys aren't breathing hard. The, and the Russians are just flying out there, right? I mean, this is the thing. And, and no one knew. No one had any idea. It's worth yeah. noting from my earlier comment that anybody who had played them, and Serge Savard had played them in juniors, yeah. Ken Dryden had played them in the World Championships, playing for the you know, collegiate, basically, Team Canada. Yeah. Yeah. So had Red Berenson. Anybody who had played them took them far more seriously than anybody who hadn't. But yeah. no one thought they were going to lose. Yeah. They are also, they train year-round, this team, basically. So they are constantly... 11, 11 months out of the year, they're in yeah. a barracks together, no wives, 
no distractions. You're on the ice three times a day. They monitor your diet, and you're you're as bond, you've been bonded since 15. You know those guys. That's your family. Yeah. So those guys had no problem binding, and Canada had all the problems. And of course, you also have Anatoly Tarasov, yeah. the father of Soviet hockey. Starts with an outdoor rink, 10 feet by 30 feet, in a children's park outside Moscow. The first artificial ice anywhere in the country. And he knows if he tries to copy Canada, they've got a 60-year, 70-year head start. He can't do it. Mm -hmm. And his great quote is, to copy is always to be second best. So he's going to do the opposite. You know, Canada's big, tough guys, cross the blue line, big slap shots. He said, we're not doing any of that. We're going to be smaller. We're going to be quicker. We're going to be in better shape, better skaters, better passers. And we're not going to shoot until you see the whites of their eyes. So he took the opposite approach. And no one knew you could play hockey a different way. You know, these, these NHL guys never gave it any thought. They didn't know what they were even doing in the first place. I mean, they knew how to play hockey. They didn't know they had a style until they saw the other style. Amazing. You know, and they're doing things like training with ballerinas and things like that. I mean, there's just... Playing volleyball, playing yeah. basketball, yeah. medicine balls, working out. And what did Dale Talon said? It turns out doing 30 jumping jacks in her underwear was not good enough. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is back in the day too. And the off season was the off season, and you probably really weren't doing a whole lot of working out if you were an NHL. Player. Well, as John Martell said, he is working in a uh, in a golf course in the pro shop you now outside of Montreal. Yeah. That was his job. He had to have a job. This is a Hall of Famer we're talking about. Yeah. He said, you know, the YMCA is downtown Montreal. That's a three hour trip, and it's eight o'clock at night. I'm going to do that. No, I get two months off. <laughs> Amazing. So let's tick through the Canadian game. So they go back to Toronto, and there's a bit of a rebound here. And, I, and what, what makes that happen? Uh, emotion. Yeah. Uh, emotion. And also Harry Sinan made a lot. He made a few mistakes, which we talked about. But he mm -hmm. made a lot of good moves. One of them was to not try to outscore them in the second game, get grinders like J.P. Parisi, lesser-known players. Um, mm -hmm. And as Bobby Clark said, uh, that game we won on emotion. But you can't yeah. win three games like that. You can win one game like that. Right. And, and individual talent. Ivan Cornway scores a great goal. Plus, Basito scores a great goal. Peter Mahovlich scores the second, I would say, most famous goal in the series, shorthanded, right. a beautiful goal. And, and also, guess what? The Soviets got cocky that fast. And right. they did not play as well in the second game as they did in the first game. So, but at that point, you think, well, it was all a bad dream that we are really better than the, than the Soviets. So we're okay now, but they weren't. So it's a full roller coaster here. And then we go to Winnipeg and it's a tie game for four. And then we go to Vancouver, the last game, right? Is that the last game in this, in the yep. Canadian branch? And it's, uh, and it's not, it's not a great game for Canada, right? It's, it's a bad game. The players gave me a lot of hilarious now quotes about this. And as Clark said, we we're trying our best. We just weren't getting anything done. And we had no chemistry. The Lions weren't set yet. The defense wasn't set yet. Serge Servard was out that game with a broken ankle from a slap shot from Red Berenson in practice. Uh -huh. um, so that was dumb luck there. And Dryden was back in net for his first game since game one, and he still had not forgot the Soviets. Dryden's style was to uh, go out and challenge the shooter, you know, big slap shots, and cut the angles off. And it worked very well for him. But the Soviets don't do that. They bring the puck down and go tic-tac-toe around the goal crease until finally the last guy's got an open net. And his style was the exact opposite for that. So he would have to teach himself a new way to play goalie between game four and game five. Right. So they, they lose this game. And, badly. Uh, badly. Badly. And the, the fans boo them. The Soviet have taken a 2 nothing lead. 
Again, an example of perfect puck control. Look at them That's set up. That's an arena full of fans in Vancouver just booing this elite team of Canadians. And here's the beauty part. They're booing them a little bit before the game and a lot during the game. And the players in the crowd, yeah. uh, you know, half the guys are up in the stands. They said, it, it got, Pete Malva said, you had to remember that this was Canada and not Moscow <laughs> because yeah. it didn't feel yeah. like Canada. And that, of course, sets up Esposito's famous speech. How important is that moment, this Esposito? I mean, he really laid it all out on national television. How important was that for the team when you talk to the players? This is one of the most famous speeches in Canadian history, not hockey history, yeah. in Canadian history. Yeah. And almost any Canadian around at that time can remember it. So mm -hmm. the game is going downhill fast, but at the end of the game, he's the player of the game for Team Canada. So he's got to do an interview on the ice at that moment with a microphone in his face while two teenage kids are by the Zamboni screaming at him, admit it, communism is better. Ah. Capitalism sucks. And that never got on camera. I think it's not been published until this book comes out. Yeah. And he heard that, and that's what ticked him off. That was the final straw. So Johnny Esau uh, puts the microphone in front of Esposito's face, and Espo told me, I don't recall the question. It didn't matter. I wasn't going to answer it. <laughs> I had something to say. And Esposito's a very outspoken guy. And I got to say, when you play that speech, I thought, even now, 50 years later, I thought he nailed it. For the people across Canada, we tried. We did our best. And uh, for the people that boo us, geez, I, I'm really, I, all of us guys are really disheartened and we're disillusioned and we're disappointed in some of the people. We cannot believe the bad press we've got, uh, the, the booing we've gotten in our own buildings. And if, if, if the Russians boo their, their players, if the fans, Russians boo their players like some of the Canadian fans, I'm not saying all of them, some of them booed us then I'll come back and I'll apologize to each one of the Canadians, but I don't think they will. I'm really, really, I'm really disappointed. I am completely disappointed. I cannot And believe most of the players had no idea he said this. Some didn't see it for years later. Uh, but it had an immediate effect on the Canadian people. And as um, Rod Sealing said, I can't prove this, but I'm willing to bet at every Canadian breakfast table the next day, uh, they're all asking, what do you think about Esposito's speech? And Esposito had a great line. The producer is in Johnny Esau's ear saying, cut it off, cut it off. He's going way too long. And the producer said, nope, let him go. This stuff is gold. <laughs> <laughs> and that producer was right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Canada's now down. They've won a game. They've lost two. They're, they've tied a game. And it's off to the Soviet Union. But um they're doing some exhibition games, which I never, I honestly don't remember that, or I it's not something I remember coming across, that, but which was kind of important in, in the shift that happens in Moscow. Oh, yeah. crucial. Yeah. Uh, there are very few things in which all of them agree all these years later. Perhaps the most prominent is Ivan Cornway telling me, if we do not go to Sweden for those two games, I tell you right now, we do not win. We lose. I know this. Yeah. And uh, that's my very bad French-Canadian accent. Sorry about <laughs> that. And But, I mean... Five players after that say, yep, yep, and yep. Yvonne's right. Yvonne's right. Two yeah. things had to happen. One is they had to become a team, and they yeah. weren't beforehand. And part of the chemi chemical reaction is beer, as Brad Park points out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they'd go to a park across the street. They'd get some beer, and they'd hang out together. Gila Point's wife was expecting their first son, yeah. first child, Gila Point Jr., mm -hmm. and they had a pool as to who's, who's going to guess when the kid was born. And the, Gila Point Jr. was born while he's in Sweden. That was a big celebration. They started bonding their, the old silos between the Rangers and the Bruins, 
the Leafs and the Canadians, it was all breaking down. And that's when it finally happened. They realized we're in this together. Everybody hates us back home. Let's get out of the country. The papers are awful. And the second thing they gain is they play European hockey really for the first time on a European rink, international rink, which, which most of these guys had never once played on, which you can't imagine now. All these guys have played on these things many times. But back then, it's truly a foreign sheet, and they had to get used to it. So that's when they became a team. And they head into Moscow, and there's all sorts of monkey business that goes on in Moscow with the Soviets uh, and hotels and, and a variety of things. And they lose that first game, so they're, they're really behind the eight ball now. So we're down to three games left. They basically have to win all of them to pull this off, which sort of plays into the, the greatest comeback t- of your title. First of all, I have to say, looking back and watching, rewatching some of those games, it's amazing to me how good the hockey is. And it's from a different era, but how much I recognize it as to the game that's played right now, which is amazing in the space of 50 years. It's one of the most gratifying parts of this project from my point of view is watching all these games. It's some, it, and Wayne Gretzky, I interviewed him for this, and he said, this is the greatest hockey ever played. Yeah. And this is also where in one month, hockey never changed more in the 50 years prior, I don't think, than this one month that the hybrid style that now everybody plays in Sweden, Finland, in Canada, in the United States, it was born by the Canadians, really, uh, during this game. So I also got to say about game five, they blew a four to one lead, which is devastating. They scored five goals on Tony mm-hmm. Esposito in the third period. They ran out of gas and they should have been down, but 3000 crazy Canadians came over for that series mm-hmm. and they were fueled by vodka perhaps, but they're having a great time in the stands, loud as can be. As these guys are coming off, feeling utterly dejected, the Canadian crowd sings O Canada for them, unprompted. It's not on the scoreboard or anywhere else. Just an acapella version of O Canada. And I'm telling you right now, I saw these are tough guys. Brad Park, Pete Mahovlich, Yvon Cornway. These guys will pull a tear to this day when they recount what that meant for the Canadian fans to sing O Canada for them. And Marcel Dion has said, I've never heard it sung better than that, and I never will. And he was in the stands that night. And that's the impact of Esposito's speech on the Canadian fans now supporting them after a horrible loss, really. They played well to a point. Uh, and at that point, your back's against the wall. But now they feel like we're not alone. Amazing. So the next three games are incredible. And I, I, I rewatched the end of um, Game 8 and Paul Henderson's famous game-winning goal with 36 seconds left or whatever, which gave me chills still. 34. There you go. 34 seconds. <laughs> but it gave me chills. Yeah. It, it, literally, I, was, I got chills watching it. And then I like, went back and started watching the other ones. And what I realized and I'd also forgot was that Paul Henderson scored the game-winning goals in the two previous games too, which goes back to your point about that line. Unbelievable. The line was outstanding. They were put out there to be a defensive line to stop yeah. Valerie Karlamov. They're you know, probably the best Soviet player. They're Ivan Cornway, basically. Um, and not only did they stop the other teams, uh, the other lines, the mainly Karlamov line, uh, Henderson tied for the most goals with seven. And that line was by far the best uh, line in the series, offensively and defensively. And Bobby Clark gave me a great quote at the end. Where he said, look, you know, in this game, you score one winning goal, you might get lucky. You cannot score three game-winning goals in a row in Moscow by luck. That man was dialed in playing the best hockey of his life. And what you also gathered by watching these games is the incredible emotional fever pitch Mm -hmm. of every shift, every game. There's nothing, no one's coasting on either team ever. 
And almost all the guys have told me they could never achieve that level again, individually or as a team. Incredible. No, and, and, and they're all on YouTube, I should say. So it's amazingly accessible in this day and age. I, you, you mentioned Gretzky, who was about 12 years old, I think, when this was 11 going, years old in Brantford, Ontario. Yeah. And of course, you recall that uh, these games are played at 8 o'clock at night, usually, in mm. Moscow, which is yeah. about 1 o'clock in Brantford, Ontario. Mm. And so what does Walter Gretzky do? He lets his son stay home from school to watch uh, the neighbor's color TV, rare treat back then. And they're not even hockey fans. So Wayne's there by himself at the table, no snacks. His mom stops in occasionally to make sure he's not bothering the neighbor's mom. Um, and he's watching all the games. And I said, well, you know, didn't school ask where you were? And he said, they knew where I was. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, all of Canada stopped. And, and the players had no idea that was happening. Uh, they had no idea that Canadian business, Canadian schools had all stopped to watch these games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So t- TVs were wheeled into classrooms and people were watching in auditoriums. People were... More Canadians saw Paul Henderson's winning goal with 34 seconds left in Game 8 then saw the moon landing three years earlier. And they watched the moon landing. It wasn't like they didn't yeah. care about it. Yeah. And I pointed this one out to Wayne Gretzky as well. And he shrugs and says, it was more important. <laughs> uh, and, and Mark Messier said, you know... Even if they're Canadians on the moon, we're still watching the game. Yeah, yeah. So talking to Messier, talking to Gretzky, I mean, what do they say about how that impacted them as players? They took that with them the rest of their lives. And Marc Messier wrote the foreword for this book very generously, about six pages. And he gave it a lot of thought. We talked at great length. And he said just seven years later, when he's playing with Gretzky, they're 19-year-old kids at that point playing for the Oilers. If either one of them had a great play, they would say, that was very Yakushevian of you. Yakushev <laughs> was... Arguably, I think, one of their best players, if not their best player. But their discipline, um, their strength on the puck, they stole a lot of things from the Soviets. Glenn Anderson of that dynasty as well had a big impact with those guys. So, uh, so no, this changed hockey from everybody watching it. I'm a kid, uh, and an eight-year-old kid. I just started playing hockey that fall. The next summer, my hockey coaches who were coaching you know, high school-level hockey, they'd both been to the Soviet Union in the meantime to see what the heck is going on. That's how fast it happened. As an eight-year-old kid, the next summer, I am learning Soviet hockey. That's how fast. So looking at the game today, what changes can we peg to that? Like, what do you see that's different in hockey now as to hockey in, say, 71? First biggest thing is conditioning, and that's the Soviets. Um, We had almost no conditioning program whatsoever. So uh, conditioning was, that's almost all the Soviets. Second thing, now every team does it, called cycling. And I coached a high school hockey team. We could do it. Phil Esposito said, I didn't know what the hell they're doing. I wouldn't know what to call it anyway. I'd never seen it before. But I keep on chasing these guys around a circle, and I'm not getting the puck. (laughs) So that's very frustrating. Uh, Possession hockey. You keep the puck. You don't just dump it in and chase it and bang a guy and hope for a slap shot. You hang on to the puck, and like a basketball, you hang on to the puck, and you move it around until somebody has a really good chance. And that's really what the Oilers were playing in the 1980s. They would not exist Gretzky told me that, flat out. So did Messier. They would not exist, the high-flying Oilers in the 80s, were it not for the Soviets in 72. And then in the 70s, I remember the Swedes started to show up, and then you got the Eastern Europeans, and I remember, you know, Statsny brothers. So obviously completely transformed the face of the game in a way. Think about this. In, in four weeks, in one month, they play eight games against the Soviets, two against the Swedes, and one exhibition game at the end 
against the Czechs. Those three countries now comprise 20% of the NHL. Yeah. The NHL is now slightly less than 50% Canadian. So, and like 77 countries are now represented in the NHL. That's all the result of this series. And, and directly, not just you know, gradually. When the Swedes played the Team Canada in Stockholm for those two games, they're intimidated at first. And then they realize, you know what? We can actually play with these guys. Then they realize in the second game, they are playing for a contract. And who's out there? Inga Hammerstrom, Borja Salmin, you know, well-known names to NHL hockey fans. Um, that's when they realized they can do this. It opened the doors. So you've talked to, as we said, you've talked to most of the living players from Team Canada from 72. Um, mm-hmm. When they look back on that moment, I mean, where does that fit in in their lives? I mean, most of these guys are Hall of Famers, won multiple cups. Where does this the Summit Series fit in? With very few exceptions, it's one, two, and three. Sarah Savard has got 10 cups, I believe. Ivan Cornway has 10 cups. Sarah Savard said this is the highlight, you know, more than the 10 cups. And he's very proud of those 10 cups and very proud to be a legendary Montreal Canadian. He's not take that for granted. They all say this is the highlight of their careers and in some cases the highlights of their lives, short of the birth of their children. And what they didn't expect was that it's going to keep on mattering this long. That Serge Savard says you go golfing in Montreal. And they don't ask me about the Cups. They ask me about the Summit Series in Montreal. Um, if you're in Detroit, they were not winning any Cups during that time. So what else are you going to talk about? But even in Montreal, this is the number one, this is the number one topic. I was talking to Rod Sealing. He lives in a farm in Ontario. And just that morning, he's walking his daughter's dogs. And a guy drives up and says, hey, you're Rod Sealing, aren't you? And he says, yes. He goes, Team Canada, woo! And he had a great career. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, sure. he, he's a notable ranger, you know, no piker by any means. Yeah. And, he, and he said, and Rod said, and that's not so bad. In researching this book, and you put a ton of research into it, is there anything that surprised you? I mean, you're a hockey fan already. It surprised me how many hurdles they actually had to get over, more than I thought. Uh, I watched this as an eight-year-old. It's one of my first sports memories. Uh, CBC out of Windsor. But I didn't realize, I knew they fell behind, but I didn't realize how good the Soviets were. I didn't realize how little they knew about them. I didn't realize how um, balkanized the Team Canada was based on the old system of, of franchise hockey and so on. I didn't realize how, many, how much they hated the Swedes. There's a shocker for you. They all say the Swedes were the dirtiest players they've ever played against. Sweden is like the most peace-loving country in the world, but so what? <laughs> and you watch those games and you know what they're talking about. Uh, the referees were, I mean, the off-ice stuff was as crazy as the stuff on the ice. And it's, the, the story was so much richer and had greater depth than I ever thought. The one thing I'm most proud of when Bobby Clark, he goes by Bob Clark, Bob Clark was talking about this and Paul Henderson and Sarah Savard is that we got the emotion of this right. Because the fever pitch of that month, they all said they never, ever really got all that close to and I end the book with a two-page quote from Ken Dryden, which I've never done before or since. And he said, I'm supposed to love all my cups the same, like your children, but I don't. 75, you know, 76, sorry, is the biggest one for me. And that is not the biggest thing. It's the Summit Series. He said, and that's weird. because you know, I played only half the games. You know, he got blown out in two of them. He said, it's my, high, my lowest lows and my highest highs. Never was I more engaged emotionally in hockey before or since. Well, John, it's a, it's a great book. I really enjoyed it. Can you tell people the name again? The name is called The Greatest Comeback, and I got that title from Brad Park, who in our first interview, first of about 10 in that poor guy's case, 
He turned to me and says, if you look at this, this is the greatest comeback in sports history. And I started thinking about it, and I thought, he might be right. So the title is Brad Parks. Thank you, Brad. And it's available across Canada, of course. Yeah, wherever you get your books. Well, John Bacon, thank you so much for coming on the Explore podcast. Thank you, David. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and this podcast, can you do us a big favor and give us a really glowing review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen? I know that sounds like a bold ask, but the way the algorithm works in podcasting, it's the single best way to ensure these interviews reach as wide an audience as possible. So thank you very much. It does make a difference. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. We'll be back again in two weeks. Until then, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin.